are going to go ahead and uh, get started today. I want to thank everyone for, for joining this uh, first Meet the Author uh, call. And um, it is our pleasure this morning to have with us Dr. Denny Coates. Uh, Denny is the CEO and co-founder of Performance Support Systems. Denny is also the author of 2020 Insight, which is a customizable engine for multi-source performance feedback surveys. Denny um, has had quite a varied career. He has served on the faculties of the U.S. Military Academy and the College of William and Mary. He also was an adjunct instructor for the Center for Creative Leadership for 10 years. Denny has been a human resource professional for over 30 years, which is quite impressive, being that Denny is only 30 years old. He also, <laughs> in, in addition to his October issue of the ASTD Info Line, which we are here to discuss with Denny today, Denny has um, uh, also written a number of other published articles on leadership, management, and other uh, training kinds of topics. And we're really excited to have you with us today, Denny. And uh, Denny, um, I think it would be a really good way for us to get started this morning. Uh, is to learn a little bit about your interest in this particular topic, the transfer of training. Can you tell us you know, why you've been interested in this? I know this is something that's been a passion of yours for a number of years. Could you, could you speak to that a little bit? Uh, thanks, Susan, uh, for inviting me to say a few things about this topic. It's, it's one of my favorites. Why is it so interesting to me? Well, it's, it's kind of a long story. You see, I've been focused on it and bothered by what they call the transfer of training problem since the mid-1980s. And I think this is a big problem, a huge problem. You see, what we're actually talking about here is the inability of formal instruction by itself, whether in the classroom or online, to do what people expect it to do, which is to change behavior or improve performance. Now what this means is that most of the money that organizations spend on training doesn't actually produce the desired result. Now the programs may be world class and the attendees may say they love them. But in the end, most of the participants continue doing the things the way they always have. Not much changes. So the investment, which is usually significant, is largely wasted. Now, I know this probably sounds alarming, but it's a documented fact. It's a very old problem. Uh, people were writing about this in the 1950s. But now we're starting to pay attention to it. And we're learning what to do about it. I know about this uh, firsthand because PSS, before we developed 2020 Insight, we weren't a product company. We were a consulting and training company. We focused on leadership, teams, sales, and service. Our clients loved us, and, and usually they act, asked us back for you know more programs. But after years of delivering what I always thought were really top quality programs, we noticed that our training didn't have the impact we thought it would. Most of the participants hadn't changed their behavior at all. It was disappointing and frustrating. I thought to myself, hey, this is a serious problem. 
But I also noticed that we weren't alone. All our colleagues were having the same experience. So ultimately, we created 2020 Insight, which addresses the assessment and measurement part of the solution. Now since then, some really good books about learning transfer have been written, and I've listed them in the InfoLine's bibliography. Uh, but actually, my understanding of what you have to do to make training stick began with my fascination with brain science about 20 years ago when I was doing research for a brain-based personality assessment. Back then, what I really wanted to know was, how does the brain work? What is learning, really? If you think of yourself as a learning professional, which I do, uh, that's the number one question you should ask. The, the brain is the part that does the learning. It's what I call the learning instrument. So I kept asking, what's going on up there when a person learns? Along the way, I, I read a couple hundred books about brain function and cognition. Eventually, I got some good answers. And ultimately, I related these answers to the training transfer problem. What I discovered is of monumental importance to trainers. What I discovered is that knowing what to do and wanting to do it aren't enough. What you learn in training has to become a habit. The new way of doing things has to become your way of doing things. Otherwise, in the press of everyday work, you won't do it that way. And if you want to improve a work habit or ingrain a new skill, something physical has to happen in the brain. You see, brain cells have to grow dendrites and physically connect to each other and a special neural pathway has to form, which is actually a new circuitry that enables the behavior pattern. I'm talking about a physical change in the brain. I'm talking about a permanent hard wiring of the brain. This fact represents a major challenge for trainers. The challenge is that if you want to get people to do things differently, if your goal is to improve individual performance in the workplace, you have to replace the old, well-established neural pathways with new ones. You have to rewire the brain. This is really what has to happen. Now, it may sound daunting, but, you know, people learn new skills all the time. And training is often the best way to begin. But what stimulates the neurons to grow and connect is the consistent persistent re repetition of the behaviors over the long haul. This means many, many repetitions of the new behavior pattern. For example, think about how much practice it takes for a golfer or a tennis player to get comfortable with even small changes in their swing. And then think about the fact that trainers are presenting skills that are a lot more complex than hitting a ball. Bottom line is that we're talking about a lot more repetitions of the desired behavior than you could possibly build into any course. So the only way to make this happen is for the doing of the new skill to continue long after the course. Practically speaking, more than 90% of the repetition needed to ingrain a new behavior pattern has to happen after training is over.
to master a new skill, participants will need to apply it consistently for several months and perhaps longer. This is the post-training follow-through that everyone's writing and talking about. And it almost never happens in organizations. They assume that high-quality training will do the job. So they don't set up a system to support post-training follow-through, which is why training rarely changes behavior. Every of what you have to do to change the brain is the reason I'm so interested in learning transfer. Uh, the folks at ASTD gave me a chance to share this perspective in the InfoLine, which outlines the most important things you need to do to make training stick. I think that's so true, uh, Denny, uh, and I think that every one of us on the call could point to things that we have learned on an intellectual or knowledge level that we just don't put into practice um, because we've not ingrained those behaviors. And so it's uh, certainly something that we can um, see in our own behavior, uh, the results of, of training not being ingrained. Um, but it, it's really huge for organizations. and. In the info line, you begin to outline you know, ways that we can work through this and capitalize on training to make it more effective. And you begin uh, with eight initiatives um, to increase the successful transfer of training. And the first of these you talk about is to focus on the shortfalls in business results. It seems kind of obvious, um, but I'm not certain that it always is put into practice. And you list seven questions um, that really begin looking at the organization from a very macro perspective, and then you really drill that down, right down to the individual person within the organization. I was wondering if you'd be able to uh, help, uh, share with us some of the diagnostic questions that you used to start at that very macro level and then drill down right to the individual person within the workplace. Sure. Um, you know, uh, in addition to making training stick, which means um, actually changing behavior over the long haul. Uh, what organizations want is an impact on the, on the bottom line. You know, they want results. They, they want the profit margins or whatever to increase based on the fact that they invested in this training. And that's why I put this principle, this, uh, uh, these seven questions up front. Uh, the principle behind the seven questions is, is that if the training is, isn't, isn't designed to correct a specific performance problem that affects a specific business outcome, then the training probably will have little or no impact on that outcome. Could you, could you repeat that just once more, Denny? I just think I mean, it's, it's so profound and it's so obvious, but I just think we need to hear it once more. Yeah. A lot of the things that, that we love in our profession are really actually common sense, aren't they? <laughs> um, but what I'm, what I'm saying is that, is that if the training isn't specifically designed to correct a performance problem that affects a specific business outcome, then you can't expect the training to have impact on that outcome. I mean, it might, but it probably won't. Um, now, my seven questions are a build on the list in Brinkerhoff and Apking's book, High Impact Learning. Uh, I also drew on Robert Mager and Peter Pipe's classic model in their book, Analyzing Performance Problems. The first question is, 
which business results aren't being met. It, you know, it all starts with a shortfall in the bottom line. Executives start focusing on one or more disappointing outcomes. Uh, for example, they may single out a failure to achieve 95% on-time deliveries. Now, questions two and three then ask, which work units are assigned to contribute to these results? And then, which unit performances are falling short of expectations? You see, the idea is to trace the result shortfall to a specific unit and to specific performance problems within that unit. Uh, continuing with the hypothetical example of shipping, let's say the on-time deliveries are the responsibility of four shipping crews. And so what they find out is that one of these units, Shipping Crew Northeast, hasn't been following standard operating procedures. So questions four and five drill down even further, asking, which areas of individual performance are contributing to this unit failure? And then which individual performers aren't measuring up in these areas? So checking further into the shipping crew northeast, it shows that four new personnel haven't been introduced to the standard operating procedures. So we've gone from a disappointing business result to a problem with four people. Question number six is, are the performance shortfalls due to deficiencies in knowledge or skill? Of course, when this isn't the case, the training isn't the right solution. Um, for example, the shortfall may have to do with motivation or support or supervisory issues. However, in this case, management concludes that the new personnel simply haven't had time to master the procedures. Uh, the seventh and final question is, if needed, what kind of developmental program would best correct these deficiencies? So in our example, trainers conclude that one day of training to familiarize the personnel with the procedures, most of which are available as job aids, followed by two days of supervised on-the-job training, will correct the individual performance deficiencies. Now, of course, we'd like to the crew chief to coach these four folks until the standard operating procedures become second nature. But think about what might happen if these seven questions were never asked and how easy it would be to make false assumptions about what training was actually needed. It's no mystery why a lot of training has no impact on the bottom line at all. It, uh, it's, just, it's just so interesting, you know, that it would naturally begin for training to transfer into into the behavior we're looking for by us starting to target the right things and really aiming for the right things in the beginning. But I, I, I really wonder, Denny, how often this happens and how often organizations take the time to take this very clear analysis you've just walked us through and, um, you know, really do that work before just creating a training intervention to, to fix perhaps the wrong thing. What is your opinion? Uh, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know for sure what kind of uh, front-end analysis uh, folks are doing out there. Uh, these seven questions make sense to me, uh, but, you know, the article was published in October of 2007. 
I think many organizations do some kind of front-end analysis before deciding uh, what kind of training they're going to create or purchase. Um, maybe they use one of the instructional system design models, um, or maybe they use Mager and Pipes model. These, these models are far better than adopting a program simply because it's popular or because it's inexpensive. Um, but even these logical models don't reveal what kind of program will actually address a specific business result. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree, and and uh, I would also point to another one of your uh, published articles, Denny, that uh, was entitled "When Training Fails and What You Can Do About It." Uh, seems to indicate that what you've said is true. In that article, you share a citation from Baldwin and Ford, who indicated that 90 percent of all training expenditures, and that's that 100 billion dollar per year figure, 90 percent of those do not result in a transfer of skill back to the workplace. And I would expect that a significant percentage of that problem relates to the fact that we're targeting the wrong problem to begin with. Uh, certainly has got to be a, a component of that. In, in another strategy, uh, in your article, you provide an exhaustive list of training techniques that can help to foster the transfer of training. And uh, I just, this was just an absolutely excellent collection of ideas, and I really appreciated um, the list. Denny, do you have a favorite from that particular list? Well, you know, this list uh, was actually my attempt to go back and um, uh, examine a lot of the best practices that have been, the trainers have been doing for years uh, and that have been recommended to train, trainers uh, and asking which of these best practices are designed to facilitate the transfer of uh, classroom learning into workplace performance. Um, the recommendations that I make are almost all about things that happen in the classroom, but their purpose is to prepare participants for what should happen after they leave the classroom. I, I think training is, a, is great for introducing a new skill, you know, for putting a behavior model in front of people. As I said before, no training course can give enough practice to establish a new neural network. To ingrain a skill, you need to continue doing it, doing it after training and need to be practicing it in the workplace. Um, so the, my favorite techniques are those that prepare the participants for this post-training period, uh, which could take several months. Now, this implies that what trainer, trainers need to do, and a lot of what my recommendations uh, say, is that they need to be setting up a system of support for this follow-up. And that's a really good segue um, because you, you also begin to talk about um, the manager uh, and um, that real learning really begins as the learner exits the classroom uh, and gets back on the job and has the opportunity to practice again and again and again. Uh, and obviously those of us that are training practitioners, learning practitioners, um, you know, we've lost contact 
uh, with those folks as they exit our classroom. Um, so we really need to get the manager on board with this. Is I, I, I wonder, you know, as we educate managers about this, Denny, are they all going to be lining up and saying, yes, we want to support you, and we're ready to, uh, to do that after the classroom uh, support that's needed, or is it going to be a bit more challenging? What do you think? Um, well, wouldn't, we would love managers to do that. Um, however, change doesn't happen that quickly, and and uh, managers have have a mindset towards training. Uh, I've had it for decades, uh, and in most organizations, when a manager releases a team member to attend training, the expectation is that the trainers will do their thing, and the employees will return fixed by the training. I. I think most managers simply don't appreciate how the brain learns. Now, this isn't a criticism. I, I mean, do we really expect managers to understand the neurobiology of learning? Of course not. But they really don't realize what's involved in changing behavior. They don't know that ingraining the skill, which is really what they want, will take time. They don't appreciate the need to encourage their employees to use the new skills and to help them learn from their experiences in the workplace. I think it would be a good idea to give managers this perspective. And to get them on board, executives need to spell out what they expect of them in coaching their subordinates. They need to actually hold the managers accountable for whether the team members improve their performance probably some kind of orientation or training for managers in this area of coaching would be helpful. Yes, and, and you talk about an integrated follow-up process is, is what's really needed for learning skills to, and, and to have these skills become ingrained over time. What do you mean by this integrated follow-up? Um, what I mean uh, by integrated is one, that you need to be doing assessment along with the training, and you need to be doing follow-up after the training. And two, that all three of these elements need to be based on a single set of desired behaviors. And three, that assessment, training, and follow-up all need to be considered a part of a single process, not separate programs or initiatives. This is what I mean by integration. I know this probably sounds uh, a little bit outside the box, but the failure to integrate assessment and training with a structured system of reinforcement is really what has caused the transfer of training problem. What's kind of funny about that, Denny, is in a sense we have utilized assessment with training ever since the beginning. The problem is, is that the person that we've assessed at the end of the training has been the trainer not the learner. Um, so it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Um, another strategy that you discuss, you talk about learning networks. And I'd like to quote you. You say that while only the direct manager can provide effective performance coaching in the workplace, he or she can be supported in this role. So we are saying we can support this person. Tell us a little bit about these learning networks and how would that support the manager's coaching process? Yes. Um, naturally, you want, you want 
the manager who's really the one who's on the line out there with the folks during this 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 extended period where they're trying to ingrain their skills and they need that coaching they need that enforcement reinforcement and we expect the trainers to support the manager in, in that role but the learning network is something else um, in the workplace uh, in the real world people actually learn from each other not just from their trainers and not just from their managers this has always been true but Setting up a structured learning network can support these relationships and make them a part of the learning process. The trainers and the direct managers should be a part of an individual's learning network, but it also could include anyone who cares whether the individual actually improves his or her performance. I'm talking about maybe some of the co-participants from the course or mentors. Uh, subordinate team members, or perhaps some high performers in the organization who are willing to be peer coaches. In my vision, uh, these interactions would be supported online to make learning from each other easy. Trainers can host lunch and learn sessions, and they can send out regular reinforcement tasks, and this would be good support. Mm -hmm. You know, a really good example of this is what you folks at Team Approach do with your Team Leader Cafe program. It involves stakeholders to reinforce their leader skills. Uh, the point is to have some kind of system in place to help people learn from their day-to-day -day work experiences. Thank you, Denny. And, and you also uh, talk about uh, a number of other strategies uh, in this article, and unfortunately, um, because we'd really like to give some of the listeners an opportunity to interact with you, we really only have time to, to take a look at um, just one more question. And, and so I would ask you this, what would you feel is the single most important thing that an organization can do to follow through and get real changes in behavior. What is the single most important thing, Denny? The single most important thing. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, to try to improve all eight areas at once, uh, maybe that's not the most effective approach. Um, the practical thing is to start somewhere and then evolve with your other processes. I'm going to recommend that you do not just one, but two initiatives. Um, Probably the most powerful first step would be for trainers to start linking assessment, training, and follow-up. What you do, a simple way to begin that, that integration is to assess participants' performance levels before training, and then again several months after the training. I'm talking about performance feedback, not a knowledge test. These assessments should be tied to the behavioral objectives of the training, and they should be based on feedback from others. The pre-training assessment would tell the participants where they're strong and where they're not before they start training. This helps the learners focus in the classroom. Also, since they know the same assessment will be repeated, uh, nine to 12 months after the training, they, they know that there's going to be hard evidence, evidence about whether they've improved um, 
this increases their motivation to really learn the skills. By the way, comparing a level's performance before and after training is a great way to accomplish what we call level three evaluation of training. Actually, it's the best way I know. But it's a mistake, I think, to think of it as a report card just for trainers. Learners need to be held accountable for improving their performance, and their bosses too. Also, these post-training assessments give management the numbers they need to calculate ROI, the return on investment in training. I'd like to, I'd like to mention that the 2020 Insight feedback system was designed for this. Uh, people think of 2020 Insight as a 360-degree feedback tool, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's a feedback engine, a platform for all kinds of surveys, not just 360. Um, you can load any set of behaviors, any customized set of behaviors, and conduct repeat assessments with no additional expense. This is what makes it a perfect tool for setting up assessments and measuring performance levels before and after the program. So in summary, my first recommendation would be to start comparing pre- and post-training measurements of performance. Thing two would be to get the participants' direct managers involved. I've already talked about this. Um, as I said before, it's kind of a learning triangle. The trainer, the learner, and the learner's boss. Each has a role, and all three should be held accountable for whether the performance actually improves. The reality is, when the manager isn't involved, behavior almost never changes. Uh, Susan, we, we began with your initial question about why I got involved in this business of how to make training stick. You know, it really does come down to this. It's an amazing amount of money that's spent on training and development. Um, the estimates vary between $10 billion and $100 billion in the U.S. alone. Uh, my info line summarizes the research on this, but the claim is that anywhere from two-thirds to 90% of the training fails to actually change behavior. My hope is that HR professionals will want to do something about it. If they deliver programs that actually have the desired impact and can show evidence that change is really happening, it'll help them make a case for more programs like this in the future. Um, Absolutely. In the article, I don't recommend overhauling their systems. Uh, instead, I suggest they take a look at what they're doing now and maybe doing some things differently. So the changes I outline aren't radical. Uh, they're common sense things that any organization can do. And Susan, um, folks like you can help them. <laughs> Thank you so much, Denny. And I just wanted to point out uh, when, when you receive your info line a little later today um, that you will see Denny puts together, uh, I think, one of the clearest and simplest ways of measuring ROI, and that's on page 8 of the info line. And I also wanted to mention um, that when you get your info lined, the invitation for you to assess that I mentioned earlier on the call, um, that the person invited that invited you today will give you an opportunity to assess your organization's support for performance improvement, all the things that Denny's been talking about. And you'll find the actual items in that assessment on page 10. And we will manage that assessment process for you, those of us that invited you to join you to join Denny um, here today on the call. Uh, what I'd like to invite you to do at this point in time, uh, we have uh, some, some time remaining, and um, 
And Denny is here for us and would love to dialogue with you about your specific questions around the, 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 the transfer of training and some of the other uh, uh, related topics uh, that he has mentioned uh, this morning. So if you would unmute your uh, phone, star six, or un use the unmute fe uh, feature, and uh, we'll, we'll open this up for questions at this time. Um, hi, I have a question. This is Martha, and I work at Phoenix Contact. It's a manufacturing company. Hi. And, Denny, my question to you is uh, my challenge is I'm in charge of product-related training, and we train our field salespeople and our distribution channel on our products, hoping to improve our sales, obviously. Um, but I love the approach, and I have an instructional design background. My challenge is even what, before we start designing a new class on new products is to identify a specific behavior when it's sales related because there's so many other skills involved besides just the product knowledge. Do you have any tips on how I can zero in on, um, let's just say, um, you know, if I have one product that I'm interested in, but just because they have the knowledge on the product and what it's capable of doing, all the sales skills involved and all of the account management and all those other issues, how I can actually measure that this knowledge of the product has improved their performance. Do you understand my question? Yes. Um, actually, that's a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, it gives me a chance to answer it on a highly conceptual level. <laughs> right, right. Um, the traditional way of approaching this is, is, at least in my experience, to ask, uh, if they're doing the things that we want them to do, what does that look like? And so you, you go about the process of uh, identifying observable behaviors. Okay. Those are, you know, the things you want them to do. Right. And, and, and of course, uh, there are skills that help them do that, and there's knowledge that help them do that. Um, but you do that, and, uh, and, you, and in the process of getting... And you want to engage perhaps some of the best performers and, and watch them do what they do. Okay. And you want to do um, other sub subject matter experts. It might be some right. sales managers right. or some people in HR who have been teaching this forever. Um, and, there, you know, there's the literature that you can get into and also the product, the product itself. So... There's a lot of there are a lot of resources, and you basically have to do your due diligence and uh, research internally. Uh, every organization is different, and so what you ultimately come up with would not apply to, to for example, right. other organizations. Right. And so you you will create this uh, unique set of uh, behavioral objectives that you want to achieve through your instruction and. Um, doing some kind of performance level assessment before using those objectives and then uh, holding them accountable many months later when you expect the, import, the, improvement, the improvements in performance to become evident. Um, and, and, you know, one interesting thing is that a lot of times when we uh, assess people long after the training, uh, if we assess them too soon, we actually see a decrease in their performance levels sometimes. Um, 
which is discouraging. <laughs> but it, it's actually predictable because it's sort of like um, what happened to Tiger Woods a couple of years ago. I don't know if you follow professional golf or not. It's kind of hard not to follow Tiger Woods. But, you know, this guy, he was um, he's a phenomenon. And he's, as a very young man, he accomplished things that only a handful of professional golfers have ever done. And so what did he do? He changed his swing. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he and his uh, swing coach uh, settled on a, you know, a set of changes in, in swing behavior <laughs> that he wanted to, to, to do. So, you know, really it's the same thing. It's, it's learning improved ways of doing the work. And so they got, he got his instruction and he began to practice it and he went back onto the tour and did terrible. Well, terrible for Tiger. Um, he he only won one tournament. I mean, of course, you know, a lot of people would uh, give everything to win one PGA tournament. But he usually wins about six or seven, and he, won, he didn't win any majors, and he and he was fourth on the money list. So that's that's not Tiger Woods. And this is after all these improvements and working on it, and practicing every day, and, and you know, applying it in the workplace, which is on the, on the course. In, in championships but you know what happened was is that uh, after about 10 or 12 months of doing this it I guess the neurons connected and he found it all it just all came together for him and he got real comfortable with it and so he won three or four tournaments in a row at the very end of the year going into the next season and after that he had his usual 11 million dollar uh, season and he's been having them ever since. It just takes time because what you're, what you're, you don't really have it ingrained yet, you see. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to force it through. Um, and it's the right thing to do, but it's, it's, it's frustrating because it doesn't always work the way it should work when things are comfortable, when things are automatic, when you have the neural net all grown together uh, and it's, it's natural. Okay, thank you. All right. Thanks, Denny. Another, any other questions for Denny this morning? There's still time. Okay, well, I, I, Denny, I'd like to uh, thank you for, for being our guest today, and uh, we might come back uh, in 2008 and invite you to uh, do a session specifically around ROI. I know that's a topic that many of our colleagues are, are often asking about and interested in, and um, your formula for helping people calculate that, I think, is, is uh, just absolutely excellent. So maybe we'll, we'll be able to host you again in 2008. So once again, we would like to thank Denny Coates, uh, who has done just an excellent job this morning and for his absolutely excellent work and writing in the info line on the transfer of training. We, we thank you again, Denny, and uh, really appreciate your time and your talent. Thank you, Susan. My pleasure.